It's Thursday, July 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Largely driven by the pandemic, drug overdoses, and homicides, U.S. life expectancy fell by one and a half years in 2020. This is the biggest decline since World War II. The group that fared the worst were Hispanic men who had a drop of 3.7 years. Life expectancy is an important number because it's a measure of a nation's well-being and prosperity. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for The Big Drop. Next, the restaurant industry has been having a hard time coming back after the pandemic. Each month so far this year, about 5% of restaurant and hospitality workers have quit their jobs, largely due to low pay, no benefits, and rude customers. There are currently 1.2 million jobs unfilled in the industry, despite rising wages and signing bonuses. Alina Seljuk, business correspondent at NPR, joins us for more. Finally, another story about how desperate some businesses are to get employees. In this crazy labor market, recruiters are the new telemarketers and job ads are the new spam. Companies are digging up resumes and calling people back that might have applied years ago, and they are increasingly using automated tools to reach as many people as possible. Ping Chen, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what some businesses are resorting to. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I mean, wealthy nations have growing life expectancy. People live longer. They live healthier lives. They get better health care. They live in safer, cleaner environments, clean water, clean air, you know. And so when there are declines in an advanced nation, that's really a sign of societal problems or a catastrophic event. Joining us now is Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Betsy. It's nice to be here. I wanted to talk about life expectancy in the United States. You know, obviously, we just came out of the pandemic. It was one of the top killers in the country last year. But that, coupled with drug overdoses, which we just recently talked about, homicides, All of this is driving the life expectancy down. It fell by 1.5 years for 2020, and Hispanic men suffered the largest decline in all of this. So, Betsy, what are we seeing in the numbers with this? Well, first of all, so yes, the U.S. life expectancy fell by a year and a half, 1.5 years, and that's the largest drop in generations. I mean, basically since the middle of World War II, just to put it in perspective. Normally, life expectancy changes by like a tenth of a year or two-tenths of a year, So this is huge. And three quarters of it is basically due to the pandemic. I mean, there were 385,000 deaths last year. Many researchers and public health officials argue that a lot of those deaths were preventable, but nonetheless, they were deaths. So we would have had, just with COVID alone, we would have had a drop in life expectancy. Then you throw on top of it a 30% increase in deaths from drug overdoses, rising homicides in inner cities. And a couple other factors. One was chronic liver disease, which is from heavy, heavy alcohol use. So it's a pretty, pretty bleak picture for 2020 with a lot of factors going on. And many of them were were, in fact, tied uh, to the COVID pandemic itself. Why is life expectancy important as a number? How do we use that as a measure of how well the country is doing? It's based on mortality in a given year. How many people died? And, you know, the ages they were, obviously, someone who dies younger, is that's more lost years of life. And then ultimately, it's a measure of a nation's health and well-being and prosperity. I mean, wealthy nations have growing life expectancy. People live longer. They live healthier lives. They get better health care. They live in safer, 
cleaner environments, clean water, clean air, you know. And so when there are declines in an advanced nation, that's really a sign of societal problems or catastrophic events. Tell us who fared the worst in all of this. As I mentioned, Hispanic men had a a particularly sharp dip on this. In general, Hispanic and Black populations fared disproportionately. White populations also not, not so great. But Hispanic men, it really stands out. Their life expectancy declined by 3.7 years. So if you think that the national average was 1.5 years, for them, 3.7. The explanations are a couple. One, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic that the CDC estimated that 90% of the decline for the Hispanic population was due to COVID. Many people work in jobs that put them at increased risk of exposure, right? Frontline jobs, service, They were out there working in person during the height of these surges and while others were working remotely and and much safer. And then many families live in multi-generational homes, more crowded conditions where it's harder to isolate after you've been infected and the disease spreads faster. The other factor is that many of the Hispanic people who died were younger and so that affected their life expectancy. The pandemic did take a greater toll on life expectancy in the U.S. than other advanced nations as well as as what we're seeing in some of the data, too. Yeah, I spoke with a researcher who did a study, published a study about a month ago, kind of projecting what U.S. life expectancy was for 2020 and comparing how the U.S. fared against other peer countries, advanced, you know, high income nations in life expectancy between 2018 and 2020. What he found was that the other countries... They certainly were affected by the pandemic, but on average, life expectancy decreased by 0.2, so a fifth of a year, basically. And in some countries, New Zealand, for example, life expectancy rose last year. So we are definitely an outlier. And this is kind of furthering a trend, with a point he made in his, in his piece. It's furthering a trend that has been going on for years, in which the gap between life expectancy in the U.S. and peer countries is widening. Ours is getting worse while theirs continues to improve. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I don't know. People come in and they just kind of expect you to do everything for them. Like... It kind of feels like you're just there to serve them, you know, which I mean, we are, but also treat us like human beings, you know. Joining us now is Alina Seljuk, business correspondent at NPR. Thanks for joining us, Alina. Thanks for having me. I wanted to do another check in on our restaurants. I always like looking into it and see what's going on. And, you know, it's been a tough road back from the pandemic for a lot of those in the restaurant industry. Obviously, they were dealing with a bunch of supply chain issues, closures. But now that a lot of them are reopening, the next phase of this is that we've seen is not enough workers, not enough employees wanting to go back. And they've long struggled with just a hectic industry. It's tough to work in a restaurant a lot of times. The pay is low a lot of times also. And then the big problem, us, you know, a lot of rude customers always come in and People really really evaluated themselves over the pandemic, and a lot of them do not want to go back to the restaurant life. So, Alina, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing out there. 
All of these things you named are exactly the factors that people who have long worked in the restaurant industry, but also just in food in general, fast food, all types of bars as well, all types of food establishments, they have been thinking about. There are multiple factors that all came together, I would say. You know, the pandemic shuttered a lot of restaurants and for the first time, workers kind of had that quiet moment, as you're saying, it's, you know, when you talk to workers in restaurants, they will tell you how crazy of a mad rush that job can be. And so for many of them, those, you know, week or two when they were, when the restaurants were closed, gave them that sort of moment of quiet to think about the realities of their work. The workers I've talked to will talk about how hostile and aggressive their bosses can be, how insane the hours are, how few breaks they get. Someone I know was saying they started smoking just to get five minutes off work to get that break, to have that moment to themselves. Pretty intense scenarios. And then on top of all of that, the major reason survey after survey shows the major reason people have been leaving this industry is low pay. And add to all of that, on top of all of that, (laughs) you've got this reopening. And as you're pointing out, people are showing up at restaurants and someone called it where we've gone feral. Like, you know, the diners are extremely impatient. And so when you have a restaurant already operating on a skeleton crew, then you add these rude customers. People are really on edge. Testy customers have become sort of the final straw for a lot of people. All that to say, when I started looking at numbers, it paints a pretty dire picture. The rates of people quitting restaurants and bars are at the highest in decades. As you noted in the article, in May alone, 706,000 people left the industry. You know, it's happening all the time. And this is at the very exact moment that everybody wants to indulge in those very same things right now. We all are over the pandemic. We want to get back out there. Economies are, you know, cities and states, everything's opening right now. And we want to go back to that normal stuff. And we expect that same level of service that we had before. And unfortunately, a lot of restaurants just can't keep up. Like you mentioned, they're working on these skeleton crews. They're hiring new people. It takes time for people to catch up. And and we've seen stories, too, about bad reviews going up on Yelp and other places like that because people are complaining that the restaurants just aren't up to it just yet. And that's a tough part right there. And just another word about sort of just how critical the wage element is in all of this. A lot of people who have quit have been asked, you know, why they quit over the course of the pandemic. And a lot of them said their coworkers died during the pandemic. It's a big health concern. So that's, of course, a major issue. People will talk about hostility at work from managers or coworkers or customers. But at the end of the day, kind of on top of it all, the wage matter, the low pay that the industry has been plagued with for years. I just want to note about it. We kind of assess, you know, if you look at the pay rates starting a decade ago, which was a bit over $10 an hour, which is average hourly pay for people who are not managers, not supervisors within restaurants and bars, that pay went from just above $10 to $15.14, the first time over $15. This just happened in May. That's actual dollars. But if you look at the value of those dollars, if you sort of took the value of the dollars from 2011 and fast forwarded it to today in those 2011 dollars, the 1514 is really worth $12 and 39 cents an hour. And that's your average wage sort of adjusted to inflation. You talk to a lot of restaurant workers and former restaurant workers 
you know, how are they navigating all of this? Because a lot of them have probably moved on to other industries. Some of them might be going back to this. Just tell us some of the stories that you were covering on this. It kind of ran the gamut. I've spoken to some folks who left and then got a job back within food service at another place, but for much more money because the wages are starting to go up again. I say again, because they dipped during the pandemic. Then there were a number of people who just said, forget it. I'm never doing this again. I thought about it during the pandemic. And now there's this moment for me to get a job somewhere else. I want a better schedule. I want benefits. That's another thing. There are no benefits in most places within food service in the United States. You don't get health care benefits. You don't get paid time off. And so people have gone on to work at warehouses, delivery, factories. None of these jobs are easy, but many of them found better benefits and better pay in all of them. And a lot of the sort of the local Facebook groups, that's, there's one I pointed out that's been playing out in Kentucky, but there's a version of that in a lot of places where these job postings are going up and the hiring people, the employers will point out, we can't Here's a wage we can pay. And if it's under $15, a lot of the workers will sort of start jeering and saying, you've got to pay better. And then the employers will get defensive and will say, well, we can't really afford to pay more. And this line that I heard a lot now is, if you can't afford to pay a living wage, you can't afford to be in business. So there's sort of this new refrain that's popping up a lot more this day and age because there is this sort of labor dynamic where so many people have left the industry that I think right now nationwide, the latest data show, there are 1.2 or close to 1.3 million unfilled openings within hospitality. Alina Seljuk. Business correspondent at NPR, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a lot, especially in hospitality. You know, we talked to workers who've been approached by McDonald's, Cheesecake Factory, and again, these are folks who five years ago were essentially ghosted and are just now getting phone calls saying, hey, Great to get your application. When can you come in for an interview? Joining us now is Taping Chen, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Taping. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about how desperate a lot of companies are right now to get employees. You know, it's been this ongoing thing that we've been hearing about since we started opening things back up after the pandemic here. I mean, obviously, we're still going through it all. But uh, right now, you know, it's just a hot job market right now. People need employees. And what a lot of companies are doing is they're going back to the stack of resumes that they might have had from a couple of years ago, even, and starting to cold call those people and say, hey, do you want to come in for an interview? <laughs> we need somebody to start right now. So, Taping, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing on all this. Yeah, that's absolutely right. When I first started hearing about this from workers, it just seemed crazy. You know, some workers hearing back from companies they applied to five years ago. It just seemed like maybe kind of an odd fixed trend, but the more we looked into it, it's really happening at a mass scale as companies have become so desperate to try and hire workers in this climate. It's a lot, especially in hospitality. You know, we talked to workers who've been approached by McDonald's, Cheesecake Factory. And again, these are folks who five years ago were essentially ghosted and are just now getting phone calls saying, hey, great to get your application. When can you come in for an interview? I want to uh, say this quote from the article. This is These are your words, but it just fits so perfectly. In these topsy-turvy labor market of 2021, recruiters are the new telemarketers and jobs are the new spam. 
That's what it's coming to right now. So you spoke to a lot of people that are in this position right now. What have their experience been? Because a lot of them, as you mentioned, hospitality industry. So restaurants are doing callbacks on things. And sometimes, or in many of these occasions, the people themselves have moved on to different lines of work already. Absolutely. And that is what's so striking about seeing this trend happen, right? Because so many of these jobs are the kinds of jobs you apply for often among the workers we talk to in high school. So they applied when they were in high school and now they've moved on. They're in college, right? Some of them have taken one gentleman we spoke to, he now works for a law firm. And another one, you know, he's become a sound engineer. So these were folks who applied at a radically different point in their lives. And so it is a bit of a throwback time warp to all of a sudden get a phone call from a job you thought was, you know, a ship that had sailed five years ago. What are the uh, companies saying for themselves as far as this new tactic? One of the interesting parts of this, I guess, White Castle, the hamburger chain, they're sending off kind of these mass emails and texts. I think they emailed and texted 550,000 previous applicants. And for them, they got 32,000 respondents that said that they might be interested. But these are the kind of numbers that they're playing with, how, the volume that they're sending out. Yeah, they're vast numbers. And that is part of what is so fascinating is because for a lot of companies out there, especially if you're a big Fortune 500 company, I mean, you might have millions of applicants sitting in your database. And so even though it might seem like an unlikely strategy, when you are playing those kinds of numbers, your hit rate, you know, you're reaching out to that many people, you will get some bites back. And indeed, that's what White Castle, for example, reported was happening. Well, about 5% that, you know, unsubscribe, we don't contact me again. Obviously, we're saying the hospitality industry, restaurants, you know, these are where a lot of people are hurt. You know, a lot of companies are really hurting right now. You did talk about Appliance Factory in your article as well. They reached out to a lot of different, uh, you know, older applicants as well. Tell me about what they said to, uh, about all of this. Yeah, and Appliance Factory echoed a lot of what we've been hearing from employers over these recent months. Just it's gotten so hard to hire, and so you're doing everything you can. You're raising wages, right? You are increasing your recruiting budget, and as the CEO put it, it's it's a shotgun approach. <laughs> They're now reaching out, sort of blanketing folk who are in the databases just to see if anyone will come work for them. But it's really hard out there. It's tough. That said, uh, in one of the merits of the strategy is that it is cheap, right? And that's something that the company also mentioned. It's just that this is something that's more cost-effective than, you know, maybe trying a job board, or certainly it can be more economical than those kinds of strategies. Right. I mean, those people at least showed interest once in the past of wanting to work there. So, I mean, they have a database of these people, all these resumes. So, why not use it? And, and that leads to the next part of this, the way they go about this. As I mentioned, you know, White Castle sent out messages to over 500,000 people. They're using automated tools to do this. Yeah, that's something that I thought was really fascinating, too. I mean, the story that's going on, it's, it's not just sort of a quirky trend of 2021. It really points to, in some ways, what at least the folks I'm speaking were saying was, you know, future of recruiting in some ways, in which recruiters are essentially learning from retail marketers and realizing we can't just ghost people, especially in this in this environment, we have to stay in touch and repeated touch. And, and so, you know, this is a new strategy for a lot of folk. And so there's this backlog people are hearing from companies after a very long so moving forward in the future, as, as folks were stressing to me, this is something that we can expect more of moving forward. To Ping Chen, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.